Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we have done a great public service for you. We watched three hours of the Democratic presidential debate, so you didn't have to, and we're here to talk about it, break it down. Joined by the big man, John Wildermuth, political writer, Kai Milner, the deputy opinion editor of the Chronicle, and from Washington, Tal Copen the Chronicle's DC correspondent talking Democratic debate next on It's All Political. All right, we have just had another debate in the books here, and we're here to talk about it uh, here in San Francisco. Three down, nine to go. Three, yeah. Oh, you had to remind us. That was the big man, political writer, John Wildermuth. Also in San Francisco with us is uh, Deputy Opinion Editor, Kai Milner. Hello, Kai. Hi. And Live from Washington, D.C., the Chronicle's D.C. correspondent, Tal Copen. Tal, how's it going, bud? Oh, it's going so well. <laughs> we Let's start. Tal and I wrote a story in today's Chronicle about the big moment, as it were, of last night's three-hour debate. And it was, a, it was an interchange between uh, Julian Castro, former housing secretary in the Obama administration, and uh, the vice, the former vice president, Joe Biden. Let's take a listen to that right now. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just you said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. to buy in. If you qualify for Medicaid, are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said just two minutes ago? I mean, I can't believe. That you said two minutes ago that they had to buy in, and now you're saying they don't have to buy. You're forgetting that. Tal, what? How did? What was your read on that? Is that was that about the Obama legacy, or was that something ageist, or what? What the heck was that? You know, it's it's interesting because I think it played differently, sort of as it unfolded before our eyes, than it did when. You know, in with the benefit of hindsight, people are chewing over it. They're sort of looking at the transcript. They're deciding whether or not Castro was right or wrong on whether, you know, he was calling Biden out. So that's one of those moments that I think it was certainly a moment during the debate, but it was sort of, you know, one among many. And but sometimes you have these instances where sort of one of those little moments become really blown up and and put under the microscope. And so, you know, sort of with that said, it certainly played like a bit of an ageist shot at the same time, you know, afterwards Cory Booker was interviewed on CNN and he said there there are plenty of times where we sort of look at Joe Biden and wonder and the the interviewers asked is are you saying he's too old? And Cory Booker was like, oh, no, I've thought that throughout his career. So you could also argue it was just sort of a shot. Right. So it's you could you could argue it was sort of a shot at Joe Biden, even if you don't want to take it to the place of being ageist. But certainly, you know, in any debate, there's a risk of going negative and having it backfire. And it seems like it was one of those moments for Castro where he had a point uh, Biden did say something about people buying into his plan. He also had said something else about automatically enrolling. I think it's sort of evidence of the fact that 
all of these plans are really confusing and even the candidates don't have <laughs> even their own pla- plans down 100% at this point. So I'm not sure how voters are supposed to. But, you know, it, it definitely, especially with all the focus lately on instances where Joe Biden has made some real strange uh, mistakes, including talking about meeting with the Parkland kids while he was in office, except that shooting happened after he'd already left office. I mean, I think everyone's mind went to that place as soon as Castro went to that place. But does Castro really have a choice in this? I mean, here's somebody who's pulling down around 1%. And with everybody and his dog in front of him, you got to pull somebody down or in a debate like this, you have to at least say something that's going to stand out and people are going to say, oh, yeah, he's running for president. Yeah, people are saying the name Julian Castro uh, today and after the debate where they might not have. But but Kai, isn't the big issue here what Cory Booker said after the debate and uh, Tal alluded to this? Booker said, we're at a tough point right now because there are a lot of people concerned about Joe Biden's ability to carry the ball all the way across the end line without fumbling. Of course, the football reference from the former Stanford football player. Kai, is that, I mean, what what are we to make of this? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you and Tal kind of touched on it a little bit in your piece today, which is that there's a very large segment of the Democratic voting population that is concerned about Joe Biden's age. He'll be in his 80s. If, If he is to be elected, he would be in his 80s by the end of his first term which is something, you know, cognitive decline among people who are older is a fact. It is not an abstraction. People are wondering, especially when he has these gaffes, which admittedly he has had throughout his career, but they look different when there's also the question about age. And furthermore, the fact of the matter is, in a pri- we're only in the primary right now, and uh, Biden's opponents have been pretty nice to him about this issue. But if anyone believes that Trump will not take advantage of the fact that Biden is an older man, um, they are living in fantasy land. The democracy is messy. Elections are messy. We can't be concerned about Joe Biden's feelings. The problem, though, is that uh, who's going to make these arguments among them? I mean, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are in their 70s, too. If you start saying, you know, people who are in their 70s start, you know, start losing it. What do they do? And look at Donald Trump, who's up there, too. We're talking 73, about, Trump. We're talking about people that are, are older. And, you know, you can say, well, Biden's older than them, but we're talking a year, two, three, four years. How much difference is that? And so far, it, but that you know, also, and so far I mean, it, it hasn't apparently made much inroads. Among the uh, Democratic population that gets polled on the... uh... Well, to be fair, there have been concerns about Trump's fitness from the very beginning. Well, and and to Kai's point, you know, that doesn't stop Trump. I mean, he's already tweeted plenty of times about, you know, Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe, is he mentally fit to be president? I mean, never mind that during the debate this last night, Donald Trump was giving a meandering speech in front of the House GOP in which he... uh, you know, completely botched a Republican senator's name. It, you know, it it doesn't matter to Trump that there's a pot kettle problem with him attacking Joe Biden on this issue. He's going to do it anyway. And, you know, but but to your point of who's going to take it on, 
you know, the the Castro moment, I'm starting to wonder if we're going to remember it a little bit like, uh, you know, when Chris Christie went after Marco Rubio in the 2016 race where, you know, Chris Christie just sort of blew up Rubio's campaign by pointing out that he was basically saying the same answer over and over. That didn't benefit Chris Christie, right? But it, it benefited the other candidates in the race. It was sort of, you know, to use a very crude expression. I mean, it was sort of a suicide mission, right, where he took himself out, but he took Rubio out at the same time. And so, you know, there is a question of whether Castro kind of going there, maybe it wasn't good for Castro, but at the same time, everyone is now also kind of talking about, was it a fair shot on Joe Biden? What do we make of what we're calling gaffes? Should we be calling them gaffes or should we be calling them something more significant? I mean, we're not talking about the fact that later in the debate, Joe Biden gave an almost inscrutable answer supposedly about school segregation that ended with some reference to record players. I mean, the transcript of that doesn't reflect well. So we'll we'll see how Castro's sort of attack kind of plays out, not just for Castro, but for the rest of the field. I want to go to that record player comment in a second, but just to to tie up this one, uh, the last person I believe who went after Biden's age was... uh, our very own East Bay Congressman, Eric Swallow. And, uh, you know, and Swallow, of course, no longer a candidate. But are are these, isn't this supposed to be like spring training, you know, for for Joe Biden? Shouldn't he be made tougher? Don't Democrats want him to be, be able to withstand these things? And will these attacks now in the primary inoculate him in some way uh, against the age question down the road against the president, or are they going to reinforce it and make him weaker? Well, you're, it's going to come up. I mean, there's just not a doubt about that. And, you know, he should certainly have the answers for it. I mean, Ronald Reagan, you know, the, the, the same sort of thing. He famously said, uh, don't let what, don't let yeah. my age, uh, well, uh, now I'm forgetting it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> We're all having a senior moment. Yeah, I'm but again, again that question is always going to come up. It come, came, comes up with Dianne Feinstein right. and everything else. But typically it's brought up by people talking about generational change. That's what Swalwell did. That's what Castro wants to do. They're saying, yeah, this guy's bad, but so let's clear the way for younger people to take over and kind of pointing at themselves saying, kind of like me, perhaps. Well, and this is this is the fundamental problem with a primary every primary, right? You are running against fellow Democrats in a zero-sum game for the nomination, which means you're going to have to distinguish yourself and you're going to have to say why you're better than the other candidates. That's just how a competition works. At the same time, at the end of it all, you're also going to have to unite against the general election opponent and hopefully have not bloodied each other up so much that none of you are electable. I mean, that is always the problem in the primary. And, you know, we saw it on the Republican side. I mean, some of Donald Trump's best allies now are Republicans who ran against him in 2016, calling him awful things. You know, Lindsey Graham, Rand Paul, Marco Rubio. I mean, they called him unfit for office. And now they're some of his staunchest defenders. And so that balancing act and that tension, it never really goes away in one of these contests. I don't know that there's a way around it. I was wondering while watching the debate if Castro was really auditioning for a vice president um, position and doing that by sh- showing that he can be an attack dog, 
because I was quite frankly looking at him and thinking like, huh, well, this would be interesting against Mike Pence. He won't be Biden's uh, yep. vice presidential <laughs> choice. <laughs> he might have taken him off. You have to look at uh, maybe Warren or Bernie or someone else. Big man. Uh, one thing that, uh, that Talbrook brought up that's interesting is that it is a zero-sum game in a primary. Only one person can win. What is, somewhere along the line, Warren and uh, Bernie are going to have to have it out. They are fighting for exactly the same base, uh, saying many of the same things. So what do you do? When does it come and you say, well, it has to be me rather than him or me rather than her? I think that's when the field winnows even more, when it's more of an existential question for either of them. I think I don't think they're going to touch each other until then, until it's down to you know three. If it is, if it does get to that point, it pretty much is down to three right yeah, now. Yeah, well, we'll see. Not when there's like seven other dudes on the stage or and do, people on the stage. All right, let's talk about the uh, the record player uh, comment that. Uh, Tall alluded to. Vice President, I want to come to you and talk to you about inequality in schools and race. In a conversation about how to deal with segregation in schools back in 1975, you told a reporter, I don't feel responsible for the sins of my father and grandfather. I feel responsible for what the situation is today, for the sins of my own generation, and I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago. You said that some 40 years ago. But as you stand here tonight, what responsibility do you think that Americans need to take to repair the legacy of slavery in our country? Well, they have to deal with the, the look, there is institutional segregation in this country. And from the time I got involved, I started dealing with that. Redlining, banks, making sure that we are in a position where, look, we talk about education. I propose that what we take is those very poor schools, the Title I schools, triple the amount of money we spend from 15 to 45 billion a year, give every single teacher a raise to the equal raise of getting out of the $60,000 level. Number two, make sure that we bring in to help the, the, the teachers deal with the problems that come from home. The problems that come from home, we need, we have one school psychologist for every 1,500 kids in America today. It's crazy. The teachers are, and I'm married to a teacher, my deceased wife is a teacher. They have every problem coming to them. We have to make sure that every single child does, in fact, have three, four, and five-year-olds go to school. School, not daycare, school. We bring social workers into homes and parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't, want, they don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone. Make sure the kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school, a, a very poor background, will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. Some of the pushback on that afterwards was like, whoa, that's kind of paternalistic attitude towards uh, black folks. Uh, that's a um, another in a series of racially, you know, about racially insensitive, but or 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 uh, just just racially uncomfortable comments on this. What what are we what are how are we reading this? And then of course the the the, the immediate rec uh, recognition was about the record player. That's a, a dated cultural reference. But Kai, what 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 are you how are you reading this? I mean, it's a terrible answer because he didn't answer the question. It can it can easily be read as patronizing for a few different reasons. For one thing, he's talking about quote unquote they by which we assume he means black people. Um, he's not actually talking about systems. He's not actually talking about institutions. 
Um, so he's kind of hearkening back. He's he said lots of patronizing things about black people in the past, and so he's doing that again. And that's I think why people had that reaction. The other thing is, you know, the the idea that like all of this would be solved if black families just played the record player at home to their children has not been borne out if you read anything about things like a desegregation, which is an issue where Biden is vulnerable. And I'm surprised that his opponents didn't bring it up. Um, if you read things about redlining and housing discrimination and all kinds of other things, and that's what the question was about. And instead of answering that, Biden went to, well, people need to pull up their pants and um, read to their kids, which is not, which has nothing to do with, with what people are concerned about. Well, Biden did earlier talk about his efforts against redlining, just to talk about that. But <clears throat> when you just talk about the whole idea of uh, words and everything, that's part of uh, what we've seen in public service announcements throughout the state of California. And he specifically said poor families, families without a lot of, uh, lot of things in their home. Uh, the commercial I remember is a, a black guy looking like he's talking to himself, pulling a wagon down the street as he goes by talking everything. And then you see that his daughter is in the wagon and he's, again, talking to her and getting the words out. Again, you know, yeah, it, it can be taken in a lot of ways. And certainly it's a word salad uh, the way he put it up. But, you know, not answering the question you're asked, but answering the one you want is uh, pretty much the way politics the, is played. The, the assumption that black people, A, do not value education, B, are all poor, C, do not care about their kids, is, is an assumption that's full of stereotypes and that addressing it is, is considered patronizing. So I can understand why people um, heard that and, and felt like he was talking down to them. I, I spoke to uh, uh, James Taylor, who is a professor of African-American studies here um, and political scientist. And he said uh, Biden's comments, quote, were coherent only in their offensiveness. He ignored the condescending comments regarding his forefather's race legacies in 1975, just before he stumbled on the radio comments. Uh, and like, like you, he said, they don't know what to do. Who is they? Um, yeah, this is this is an ongoing challenge for Biden and, and potentially a problem because much of his support is based on uh, support from the black community. And he is overwhelmingly the favorite in the black community. Does this hurt him there? I mean, older black voters, who I would say are his base more so than younger ones, they quite frankly have the wisdom to look at this country and be like, we want someone who's going to win. And if the voters voted for Trump last time, then maybe what they want is an older white man. And this is one we can stomach. Unfortunately, it's not a lot more complicated than that. Hmm. All right. Let's talk about some of the other candidates uh, here. We've, we've uh, spent a lot of time on Biden. Um, what was um, uh, let's let's talk about uh, Kamala Harris. Where is she at right now? Um, you know, she came in hot on the first debate. Uh, she, she attacked Biden. Uh, she got a spike in the polls. Second debate, you know, more a little. Uh, she got some uh, attacks from Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, she's kind of dipped in the polls, and now she's around eight percent on the fringes of the top tier. Where 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 does she go from here? I don't know where she goes, but I think that uh, what she's decided, at least to an extent, is that people are watching these debates are less interested in what you have to say, less interested in policy questions. Then the personality, somebody that you 
feel comfortable with somebody you think seems to know what she's doing. Uh, I think in the last couple of times that I've seen her out there, she seems really comfortable with herself, relaxed, willing to make comments, kind of joking a little bit. And I think the fact that she seems comfortable is going to carry over and people are going to say, well, this person is sharp. I mean, she says smart things, but she also doesn't seem to be crazed out there. And that means a lot. Yeah, but I don't think she did that this debate. I think she, you know, she brought maybe her B game, which isn't bad, but she did not seem to have her A game last night. And, you know, and some of her jokes just kind of felt a little flat. And she's she's a funny and charming woman. I mean, she can make a good joke. It just they didn't quite come across that way. And and it's sort of I mean, to to us who sort of watched all of these debates and analyze them. It was pretty clear to me that she had sat with her advisors and they had really strategized and said, well, we didn't, the second debate didn't really hit the right note. So this debate, we're going to really just focus on Trump, 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 and we're going to, you know, speak to him. And it it was a little heavy handed and I could almost see her sort of, you know, trying to think in the moment instead of being sort of instinctive as she was seeming in the first debate. She didn't seem as relaxed. She didn't seem as sort of shoot from the hip. It was a little bit more of, you know, stick to the planned message. And she also, you know, because she decided not to go on attack in this debate, as she had previously, I think she receded a little bit into the crowd. And so it's not that she had a bad night. I think a lot of candidates had pretty decent nights and she probably falls into that category. But because she had been slipping a little bit, unable to continue the momentum she had out of the first debate and because the top three are starting to pull so far away from everyone else I don't think she did enough last night to keep herself from sort of being pushed into more of a second tier conversation where she had been talked about in the first tier before um what about Elizabeth Warren uh she largely stayed above the fray she didn't mix it up uh she didn't uh, I think she got into a little bit of a back and forth on healthcare with the, the vice president. Um, one thing that I found curious and I think it could be a weak spot for her would be, she does not have an answer about um, where she dodged the question about whether her healthcare plan would require raising the taxes of middle-class folks. It would, because that's, you know, it, it, it would require some, some, uh, some of that from middle-class folks and a lot more from wealthier people but she kind of dodged the question. And for her to sell that plan, she has to do that. Uh, otherwise, she's, she's very sharp and such. What, what did you guys think about, about I thought Warren? She had, I thought she had a very good night in the sense that she had very clear messaging. She told excellent stories. There was nothing about her manner that came off as wonky. Or, you know, some of the criticisms about her have been that she's too pre- professorial. I, th- I thought she did a great job. She's very um, folksy. Yeah. Yeah. She's very folksy. And she has a good personal story. Really connected. Really yeah. resonated. I think there are two spots where she's vulnerable. One of them is what you just said, Joe, which is that she doesn't have an explanation for the parts of her plan that people are going to say are too radical, are too expensive, are too left. Um, she doesn't fully embrace those the way that, for example, Bernie does. Yeah. Um, and the other part of it is I just I haven't seen her go on the attack. Uh, and I, I'm really wondering what it will be like when Trump really starts coming after her. So I, I, have, uh, I have full confidence uh, that she would be able to counterpunch because she's very sharp. She's she's glib. 
I don't, I don't think that's going to be a problem, but we haven't seen it yet. I think maybe because she's still in intro mode uh, for, for, you know, let's face it. She's a, a new face to much of the country. Uh, I mean, we, we know her political nerds know her, but, but most people don't. Um, so, um, uh, Tal, what do you think about Warren? I, I, you know, we talked about this a little bit last night in our live chat. I thought she was the best at recognizing that policy questions are not actually a good opportunity to start going into the weeds of the the minutia of legislation. That's not actually what voters want. And, you know, I was in Iowa uh, with Kamala Harris last month, and I was talking to voters at every stop just about everything, you know, most of them are undecided, and was asking a bunch of them, you know, are you able to follow this healthcare debate at all? Because, you know, I don't feel like it's, it's you know, anything more than clear as mud. And the voters were like, no, not at all. And I think Elizabeth Warren really gets that. And so she's built this reputation of, you know, I have a plan for that. It's it's her catchphrase. I've had a lot of voters tell me how much they like her health care plan, never mind the fact that that's one policy area that she has not released a plan and has simply aligned herself with Bernie Sanders' bill. But she has a reputation of being sort of a wonk and a planner and having a lot of policy specifics, which allows her on that stage to speak in values and to speak in the story of her message, which is fighting corruption. And I thought she deployed that very effectively last night and that all of her answers I were, were probably a breath of fresh air for voters kind of trying to follow an otherwise ping pong match between the candidates that uh, unless you're sitting there with their plans in front of you making notes, you, you're probably not following along. I think the big thing she does is she's very good on stage and she can project and make herself not scary to people listening to her. Uh, that's something Bernie's never managed to do. I mean, he comes up there and starts yelling <laughs> wild eyed and hair askew and people go, oh my God, I don't want this guy as my president. But Warren can say almost the exact same things. And as a matter of fact, when she starts talking about corporations and them being responsible for absolutely every bad thing in the going on in the country, she sounds exactly like Bernie. But the, she doesn't sound like Bernie. Let's put think, it that way. But I think part of it is that she does humanize her story a bit. And Bernie is very reluctant to do that. And Bernie, let's face it, he those two are uh, number two in the polls are kind of both within the margin of error of each other. So people are Bernie does have his base and his core. Um, but we, you know, he says he's very, very consistent on message so much so that we're like, okay, we don't talk about him as much because he says the same thing all the time, but he has a consistent message. I thought one thing on the healthcare debate that was very interesting that Biden, I thought was kind of savvy in doing was he framed this debate as, okay, uh, Warren, you're with Bernie and I'm with Barack. I'm going to support Obamacare and you're going to support Medicare for all. And um, again, goes back to Warren has to figure out a way to uh, explain, make her, make uh, Medicare for all more accessible and help people get over the concerns they have about it. Especially when you saw all the other candidates essentially joining and pulling away from uh, the full Medicare for all, 100% government paid uh, yes. health care. Yes. I mean, they, they took their shots at, the, uh, at Warren and uh, Sanders too. Yeah, it's basically, it's down to Bernie, uh, uh, Warren, uh, and uh, Bill de Blasio. Yeah, supporting this. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Hello, who? Who are you out there? Uh, one more thing I wanted to tie up. Uh, we saw the new Beto last night. The rebooted Beto. Rebooted Beto. Sounds a good band name. 
Um, he is all in on uh, gun control. Um, and he had a, he said, sure, we will, um, you know, he said, yeah, we're going to take, yes. hell yes, we're going to take back your guns, uh, your AKs and, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. Not, not, not your guns, your AR-15 your, and AK-47. Your assault yes, weapons. Your assault weapons. Yes. Yes. Good made point. for, Good made point. for war in the battlefield. Is that a savvy strategy given that, uh, yes, that plays well with the democratic base three in every four Democrats uh, support that. Republicans, uh, one out of every four support that. Independents, about 40% are with them there. Is that a savvy strategy or what? what is that? Or is he on a longer crusade here? The question is strategy to what end, right? If you're talking about moving up and potentially having a shot of winning the Democratic primary for the nomination, it's probably a savvy strategy because I think there are a lot of Democrats who are sick of sort of candidates who are afraid to say we need to do something real on guns and I think he was really speaking to that and and we have seen the electorate moving much much closer toward being able to say you know we're not gonna worry about what the NRA is up to you know we are demanding action from our our political candidates. At the same time, if you're talking about whether that's if he were to become the nominee, if that's something that could come back to him in the general election, it might. I don't know that it's necessarily a death sentence for a Democratic campaign to be in favor of an assault weapon ban uh, or taking, you know, those assault style weapons. It may still be winnable, but you already saw some moderate Democrats say publicly that they do not find this helpful in terms of what they're trying to do in Congress, which is pass some background check legislation. They think this is exactly the kind of rhetoric that allows Democrats to be painted as we're all just coming for your guns. Right. In the you House, know, in the House told that, right, that there's not support for this in the House, is there? No, the House is actually trying to do an assault weapons ban and does not yet have, it seems, enough Democratic votes. So to your point, yes, they are supposed to mark up, uh, or I'm sorry, they're supposed to hold a hearing on the concept of an assault weapons ban towards the end of the month. And that is a piece of legislation that they are struggling to even be able to pass uh, with just Democrats. So there's support for a, uh, a buyback in the House at all? That's not the uh, the concept of a buyback is not really something I've heard discussed in the context of an assault weapons ban. Uh, They did mark up a a ban on high-capacity magazines. I'm not sure if in the depths of the legislation there's sort of a resolution of what happens for people who already have a high-capacity magazine or an assault weapon in this instance. You have to think that if a ban were actually to pass, I mean, you you, got to figure out something to do with the ones that are already in circulation. Uh, and then there's a question of whether you're talking about a voluntary buyback, which more candidates support, or a mandatory buyback, which is what uh, Beto O'Rourke was talking about. But, you know, at the same time, we see plenty of politicians come out with a sort of more extreme policy pronouncement. And then, you know, in the end, they accept something middle of the road. And, and, and Trump, you know, the things he was proposing on the campaign trail, most of his voters didn't support in, you know, the literal definition. You know, he was talking about a wall across the southern border. Very few of his supporters actually wanted a complete wall across the southern border, but it was a symbol for them. And I'm not sure that, you know, what Beto O'Rourke 
is talking about isn't something similar. People want someone who's going to fight for gun violence prevention. I don't know. Right. And it's one of those things where I don't know if, you know, you could really argue that Republicans weren't going to accuse Democrats of wanting to take all your guns no matter what they pass. So, you know, does this actually make a difference in terms of how voters understand the issue? I'm not sure. Okay. But if you really want to talk about uh, somebody who's getting pretty far out there on the gun control, look at Cory Booker. He was talking about licensing all guns. And if there's one topic that uh, gets all the uh, Second Amendment people up, it's the, uh, let's say you, you need a license, uh, you need to uh, go through anything just simply to buy and be actually the owner of a gun. And as they uh, asked him last night, do you know of anybody in Congress that's, uh, that supports you on that? Anybody from the other side? And his answer was essentially, no, and so what? All right, we will be, let's wrap up. It's, we would be remiss if we did not uh, give a little minute or two to Andrew Yang, who uh, he promised that he would do something that has never been done uh, at a presidential debate. And indeed he did. He said he would be giving uh, his, you know, he is the uh, uh, supporter of a universal basic income, $1,000 a month. He said he's going to pick, what, 10 families and uh, give them $1,000 a month for a year and see how that goes. Now, there's a uh, there's some questions here about whether that's legal to do with campaign funds. Um, I mean, it, it, on one hand, it's, you know, I'm kind of mixed on this. It, number one hand, he's, he looks like Oprah. You know, everybody gets a car. Woo! Um, but on the other hand, he is raising the point of universal basic income. And he's talking about the, the, a lot of the pain that people who have had their jobs uh, taken away by AI and, and technologi- technological advances. Kai, your thoughts on the Oprah of the Democrats, Andrew Yang. Uh, I appreciate having Andrew Yang in this race for a few different reasons. Probably the biggest one is that Silicon Valley is increasingly bankrolling a number of Democratic campaigns. And so it's actually good to get some of their ideas in a debate so people can hear them and understand what this culture and what these people are about. Um, Andrew Yang with his... uh, uh, legally dubious offer to give everybody a thousand dollars um first of all he's going to get a lot of data uh on yang2020.com which may be the actual point of this particular stunt um but the universal basic income argument is one that's been kicking around in the valley for many years um i think will come across as somewhat crazy to uh middle america at first um and yet you know it's part of the larger a question about are you anti-robots? Are you anti-immigrants? What does this entire um, inequality uh, and economic problem that we have in this country, how does that shake out? And one flip side of this is, you know, some one party is blaming the immigrants and there's a section of the Democratic Party that wants to blame the robots. And Andrew Yang belongs to that part of the party. So it's very interesting having him on stage and just bringing these currents into the discussion. Gavin Newsom's on the anti-robot side, too. I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, $120,000 isn't really a lot for a campaign where it costs in California a million and a half or better to run a week of TV ads. Right. And uh, it essentially gets the the price of the, uh, the old queen for a day. Tell us why you would need $1,000 a month and what you'd do for it. And he can play this sucker out 
for as long as he's still in the uh, still in the race. So works for me. Absolutely. And Andrew Yang also wants to <clears throat> give everybody a hundred dollars to spend on political campaigns. So he may be just your testing. democracy dollars. Yeah, your democracy them. dollars. Yeah. How much is your vote worth to you? Andrew Yang has a couple of prices. <laughs> on that note, uh, thank you all for being here today. And we'll see you next time because uh, what big man, we have uh, what eight more to go. Uh, nine, nine more, nine more. I'm sorry. Yes, nine and, more. And that doesn't count the ones that might still have two nights. Yes, which I think next one is looking like we're going to be October 15th. To, to um, probably unless two someone nights. drops out, we're on track for two nights of five to six people right now in October. Yes, and we can thank our good friend Tom Steyer for that because he is qualified. He is the 11th candidate. All right. Thank you all. Thank you all for listening. That was really a fun discussion. Thank you to Kai. Thank you to the big man. Thank you to Tall for being here. And thank you to the king, King Kaufman, and Karen Creighton for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you're listening to the record player or the gramophone, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.